Welcome to another episode of Overthinking the Modern World. I hope everyone's been doing well. I am so incredibly fortunate to have my very own brother, Josh, join me for this episode. Josh, how you doing, man? Uh, great, great, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's an honor. Keen to have some good chats. Good chats. I, I got to be honest with everyone listening today. This guy has taken this episode so seriously already. Before we started filming, he adjusted his chair like 50 times and he even did an outfit change. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't wasn't aware that we were doing video. (laughs) And when I logged on, Matt, I don't, I don't know how many people watch this by video, but Matt's got this ambient lighting in the back. Hmm. He's already picked the correct angle in his room, so got to match the energy. Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, and I think something very interesting that you said, which I thought was a joke at first as well, was our voices are so similar. Should we get, should we use like a voice distorter for me? That's uh, what I'm asking you. I don't know <laughs> what it sounds like to other people. When we're talking to each other. Guys, can, can you tell there's two different voices here? Or does it sound like one of us is monologuing? Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot of people do say we're very alike. Why, why do you think that is? And do you think it's true? Um, no, I think, I think it's definitely true. I mean, it's, it's, there's no way it wouldn't be true. We're obviously raised pretty close together. We're only three years apart. We had like a lot of the same hobbies growing up. A lot of the same interests. I think it's the subtle differences um, once you get to know each other. Like, we're actually quite different. Right. But mannerisms and voice, superficially, are, are very similar, you think? I mean, voice, we can't, you can't help it, right? You can't help the voice. But mannerisms is like what you learn at home. So, of course, you listen to me, I listen to you, we listen to how dad talks, and that's just how it goes. Ah, damn. Interesting. Very interesting. I, was, I thought you would have went for the big brother approach and just said, you took after me. But you're saying that we there was a feedback loop. No, definitely. Um, a lot of people say that I talk exactly like dad. Like if I speak Mandarin, everyone's like, oh, those words sound like your dad's words. Wow. I have, I've actually never heard that. So that's super interesting. But that's actually an interesting thought because does that translate into English if I have mannerisms in like Mandarin? With that, I wonder about that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. That's something I guess we'll never really find out. We'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's some pretty interesting context before we get into the meat of the episode is that our dad does not speak English. Oh, I don't know if it's not fair that he doesn't speak English. I think he lives in an interesting world where he doesn't need to speak English, but lives in Australia. Um, if it comes to it, I think he knows a fair bit of English, but on a day-to-day basis, he probably just never needs to talk. Right, but it's definitely not conversational English. Oh, no, I think he's actually a lot better than we think, oh. genuinely. I think recently I've had, a, like, I've noticed him have chats with people or ordering things at restaurants, and he does know how to actually talk reasonably well. Right, okay, that's pretty fair. I think the the fact is, though, he's, not, he's definitely not fluent. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. us, yeah. You couldn't have... I guess, a very deep conversation with dad in English. And I, mm. I think this is uh, very true for most Asian immigrant families, is that there is some member that doesn't speak English or a few members that don't speak the language that you're proficient in. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's just the way, you know, Asian families kind of migrate, right? They go to uh, their communities where... It is the most familiar community, so they, they want to go in there and have their old traditions and cultures there so they don't have to speak in a different language. They can be comfortable being who they were before. Right. In some way, right? Ah, wow. Okay, I guess we've already started diving into the, the media episode. Um, but just to give a brief introduction is today I really want to talk about Asian identity in the West and the Asian immigrant experience. And I don't know if I told you this, but I actually filmed this episode by myself first. And I felt like I didn't tell the story well enough or true enough, I guess. So I I really wanted to have you here to be a feedback loop for 
um, telling the story and the experience. For those Asians living in the West that are listening, whether it's the US, Canada, Australia, or any other Western country, I hope that we represent our story well, but do keep in mind that no two experiences are ever truly homogenous. Josh, I think we could start from the beginning of our story and go onwards, starting with our parents and how they came to the, um, Australia. Do you want to open with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I guess a, a quick and dirty summary is really that a lot of people and a lot of our friends, um, our parents migrated in the uh, late 80s, early 90s um, from China, uh, really after what I, from what I understand is really that they um, felt that it was too unsecure, insecure, too unstable in China, particularly around the issues with Tiananmen Square and the government at that time. And they went, they chose Australia uh, and came here as what would be considered uh, uneducated kind of migrant workers, uh, even though they were, you know, college graduates or university graduates from China and kind of just climbed their way up from the, the bottom rung, essentially. Uh, and then we're, we are both second generation immigrants, so Australian born Chinese who are, you know, ethnically Chinese, but culturally very much Australian or well, a bit of a mix, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty good summary, I guess. And just, just for further context, China in the past, well, China has developed so much in the last 20 years or so, but in the past, China has been a very chaotic country. Uh, living in China has not been so great in the 20th century. For example, the invasion by Japan and the many starvation periods that they had post-World War II and also the Great Chinese Famine, where 15 to 55 million people died of starvation. So I, I think it's a very, it was a very interesting climate at the time. And, you know, going back and hearing about the stories of our parents and their parents is just insane. For example, talking to grandpa, you will hear about how people used to starve around him. I, I think that's very important context, sorry, for why they came and also just the state of things. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, absolutely. The China that is there today is very different to what our parents were growing up in and leaving, essentially, when they saw, you know, all these Western countries, Australia, Canada, uh, America, as these, like, really great places to try and set up a more secure life. I mean, grandma talks about, well, our grandmother was a teacher, um, and she talks about how most kids didn't get to, to even go to school at that time, that there were a lot of kids too poor to even go to school. And she grew up in, like, the rural countryside in this tiny village, uh, and we went there in, what, 2010 2011 and it still looked like uh this old tiny village where all the houses were kind of like shacks um and everything was concrete with no with dirt roads um so it's um yeah it's a totally different picture for sure for sure yeah i i think it's also pretty interesting that so many uh so many chinese people chose australia out of all the western countries I guess it's it's situated close, but the Australian culture is obje objectively like kind of bizarre. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, it, it's hard. Like, uh, you, I often think about did they just get, roll the dice and just choose one of the countries nearby? You know, what what hap what would have happened if it was uh, if it was France or if it was the UK or if it was Canada? I mean, it, it's crazy how much um, this act of migration really kind of changes the lives of your own life and like the rest of your generation as well. For sure, or the rest yeah. of your kids' generations as well. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that when you're in Europe, you actually meet Chinese people and they're like, oh, we have a huge Chinese community in Prague. And you're like, do you? Do you, do you really? Cause yeah, and it's crazy. Um, you look the same, but they've grown up totally different to you and you think wow like why did you guys decide Prague you know like how did you guys end up here and they ask the same thing of you like where are you from <laughs> and the thing is you're, you're maybe no I think Australia though the US and Canada do have a lot of Chinese migrants like a high percentage I, I think in Australia it's like close to four percent of the population so mm. it, it is more common in certain places we are somewhat 
Monomu. <laughs> or less unique. Less unique is a better way to put it. It was probably one of the more popular choices. And for good reason, you know. Yeah. I guess if we keep going with the story, when our parents first got here, or when my dad first, my dad first came, the jobs that they were working were very odd jobs. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I, to be honest, I love hearing about the, the, the journey um, that they that migrants take, and like, because it, it's just this kind of like heartwarming story of how they come up from nothing. But Dad often tells us that he he arrived uh, with a suitcase full of clothes and what like fifty bucks worth of cash, um, and just decided to shack up with the first person, the first guy he saw sitting outside the embassy. And that was one of our good uncles. Um, and he just said, hey, where are you staying? How much is it costing? And they split a room. And then he worked at a laundromat for the first week, just spending 12 hours a day dry cleaning clothes. It, it's, it's crazy to imagine that you can just put your whole life, you know, like try to change your life and just gamble like that and arrive with no plan, uh, no contacts, and just like talk to people on the street and try to make a living. Yeah. And no, it, it's actually quite insane. Plus the fact that he does not speak English. Like, it, I don't, I, he must he didn't have known, speak English. No, he doesn't speak any English. His English <laughs> is non-existent. He never did English at school or anything. And he's like, I'm going to go to Australia and just rock up. <laughs> yeah, he must have been using some sign language or just like, you know, symbols with his hands. Like, how did he work? It's, uh, it's crazy. That's some seven. No, that's some 90 shit. That's some like pre modern era shit where you can rock up and to like a random country and then just like go in the mm. west like imagine yeah, you just coming to sydney right now everyone's gonna be like where's your resume like where, <laughs> where, where is all your shit yeah. <laughs> oh and yeah i remember mom i was five years old and we were picking up mom from work and mom used to work as a woolies checkout cl- clerk uh, Woolies is the convenience store, supermarket, sorry. Yeah, yeah. But that was her second job, actually. She was working two jobs. That's why we would go there after work. You know, she, she would finish her job in the daytime um, doing something else. I think it was, I think it was something laundromat related or so, something like kind of along those lines. And then she would work the evening shift at, at this kind of local grocery store um, every night. So yeah, that, that's how it went back then. Damn, double shifts. Yeah. Yeah, and if, if you think about it, if you think about the ages of our parents at that time, that's around mid-30s, mid to late 30s. And these people are working the minimum wage stuff, like basic work. And it's crazy to imagine because now we're both, oh, well, I'm 25, you're 28. And we worked in established careers, I guess. Like, it would be insane to fathom you're going to be 39 and working, like, as a checkout clerk, doing what you do now at mm. 25. Yeah, do you want to give some context on, on what you do? Yeah, uh, well, um, <clears throat> I'm currently working a, as a, a doctor in aged care in Australia. But, you know, I, I was really lucky to get, you know, to go to high school, to you know, competitive high school, go straight to uni. Um, in the degree that I wanted and then kind of go through every stage of work and pass the way through there. And yeah, you're right. Like I'm what, five years into my job now and I have a very clear kind of career path, at least that I think that I want to keep on to. Um, and I'm not even 30 yet. And I, obviously I'm very blessed. We're both very blessed in our careers and our jobs. Um, but comparing that to what our parents went through, it's, it's crazy to think that in their mid thirties, that they had that hope, that they had that ambition to know that, like, they're going to get somewhere um, and be in the, in the midst of it, really, like, doing the, the, the night shift at the grocery store with two kids and hoping that you'll get there, you know, get that Australian or American dream. I don't know if I could do it, you know, like, personally, I, it seems like such a huge thing to dream of um, an un- unfathomable goal to achieve. Um, when you're a foreigner, uneducated, or uneducated in the local area, and don't have any qualifications, it's it's crazy. Right. No, entirely. And if you plan out what you think the expected trajectory of their lives should be, or of our lives, I think just based on the facts, you actually don't get very far. Because you come from 
two parents that don't speak the language or one parent that doesn't speak the language like you're in an unfamiliar place you don't you're not equipped with generational wealth and you're yeah i guess in terms of wealth you're starting at least between low and middle class when we're talking about the asian immigrants here we're not talking about asian skilled workers it's not some person traveling to silicon valley to work as a software engineer this is like people coming in at the ground level. So you grow up in that bracket for the most part. These are people that come in, as you said, with a briefcase and like 50 bucks or that weird number from other stories. Like my dad came to America with a dollar 20 in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think according to what you start with, you're not expected to make it very far in life. But there is something very special about the Asian culture. And while it doesn't apply to all Asians in the West, it's quite a shared experience. It's not, we have very similar priorities and interests. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting one. Um, and I think it plays into a little bit of that, like why the, the phenomenon of like a model minority, I think about like why people perceive a lot of Asians to, to be, you know, hardworking or good with money or very, in some ways a negative, like very stingy or very penny pinching. But yeah, like I actually read something interesting recently, which said, which was a study on Asian Americans specifically. Um, there's not too much data on Asian Australians, I think. Uh, but they said that the, <clears throat> the, the, the generations that had the most upward social mobility were actually the first and the second generations only. Um, and once you had uh, a US or, or Australian born parent, your social mobility yourself was not that high. And I think it, played, it, it echoes exactly what you're saying. A lot of these immigrant people back in the day, like our parents came in with you know, no qualification that was recognized in the country that they're working in, uh, with very little money, with no connections, uh, and yet somehow make a, a, a like a very decent life for themselves and their kids, and they they go on to like live very comfortably in the future, or con relative to where they begin, you know, in terms of wealth. Yeah, and it's like, what are those values? You know, what, why is that? A, why, how does that happen? Mm, what do you think? That is super interesting. Upwards social mobility. Yeah, and so you're not just talking about Asian immigrants. Are you? Are you talking about immigrants in general? No, this one was specifically for Asian Americans. I, I, I probably, w I don't know if it's going to be the same with people from different area, different, you know, like ethnicities. Obviously, Asian American is a huge group of people um, from all sorts of different countries and backgrounds. Right. Um, yeah, but I, I wonder if there, if there's that like a cultural identity that drives that. I see. So, I think what we're kind of landing on is that it's not just being Asian, and it's not just being an immigrant, it's really the intersection of the two. It's yeah, I think, I, I think you're definitely onto something there. I think it's about bringing those values possibly into a system that has a lot of opportunity. Um, you know, like America's often called the land of opportunity, but I think even in Australia, there was probably a lot of space for people who wanted to work really hard um, to really apply themselves uh, to climb through the ranks and make a decent living at the to do the work that you know people needed to be done, and I think it's it, you're right. It's probably that intersection of them coming in at that time and being willing to do this whatever it was, um, and just having the opportunities. Uh, I know mum and dad kind of just kind of wandered from job to job, uh, and somehow ended up doing all sorts of businesses throughout their lives. You know, the latest one, they're on what like the third, fourth family-run business now and they're selling you know they're selling furniture on an online store um and it's just kind of they're just encountering opportunities and just you know kind of like making it up as they go along which is i i guess what all of us end up doing but it's still so much harder to imagine when you when you don't have the skills but no one's told you how to do it and you're the first to do it or you your, your group of friends are the first to do it Completely, um, completely, yeah. Yeah. It's basically you start from zero. And I think, I guess the big attribute that it seems like we're both talking about or what you were just talking about is the ability to grind 
which I think is so staple in Asian immigrant culture. I would say that the only thing I am confident in my ability to do is to grind, not necessarily <laughs> be creative or be cordial, nothing aside from the ability to learn abilities and to learn new things. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think about it for myself and I, I, I agree. Um, and I don't know if that's just because we're, we're both very similar. You could ask any other second generation immigrant, a Chinese person, and they might feel so different. But I, I think like, yeah, you're right. The, the, the way I get through all the hardships in my life and I think how I've achieved my success is just through like kind of like put your head down, work hard. And I, I reckon we probably learned that from our parents and our family. I mean, that's it, it seems like that's how they did it. They never complained. Um, and you just follow example. You just follow suit. Yeah, for sure. It's also ingrained in you from an early age, I would say. From a, a quite an early age. For example, so we, we started school when we were five years old in kindergarten. And the first time I went to tutoring was when I was eight years old. So at eight years old, you're this kid sitting in this like overhead white lighting room in summer, like every day for a summer at tutoring. It's like eight to 3 p.m. It's not, a, no, okay, that, that sounds too long. Let's say it's four hours of tutoring every day, Monday to Friday. So you work at a part-time job during summer. And yeah, you're not just, and it's, it's homework. <laughs> you're like fry your brain everything is new you know you're not just you're you're not doing something manual where you get into muscle memory the whole point is to force your brain to learn new shit no absolutely uh, I, didn't, I didn't even think about it before but i think that kind of like tutoring mentality of you're exactly you're a young impressionable child and you're forced to sit in a room and just do just do maths just do maths every saturday for three hours you know like that's just how you get ahead in life and that's what they tell you you do this math and you'll get ahead absolutely it's 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 just like ingrained. you don't even think about it you hate it at the time but interesting question interesting thought that you bring that up right when i think about high school and when i think about primary less so primary school but more high school the, you know, people often say what you learn in school is kind of like useless in real life. You know, you learn how to write flowery essays. You learn how to do high level calculus. Um, none of these things you'll ever use again. But to me, at least, and I wonder if this is the, the impact of our parents. To me, the value of high school and all of that is learning that framework of how to work hard, of how to learn things. And it's more about how you structure and respond to, to that challenge of like, needing to adapt, needing to get new knowledge. Um, that to me is like what I feel like high school is trying to teach you. Wow. I don't know, how do you feel about that? That is a very interesting take on the education system, the teaching students the ability to adapt. At least that's what I think I got out of it. Because again, I don't use my mathematics or the, the physics or even as a doctor, the chemistry is virtually useless to me. Um, but it's more like, could I sit down and learn material? Could I respond to the questions that I was given in a logical way? Could I go through a whole year and do exams and, and uh, keep through it? It's those, those habits of like, you know, again, hard work. Wow. Yeah, I, I've never actually thought of school that way, to be honest, that it was teaching you the ability to adapt. And uh, funny that you mentioned school, though, and <laughs> adapting during school. I think... From what I understand about high school, so specifically our lady years, years 11 and 12, it was a lot of hacking the system, I'd call it. You, and so you studied medicine. That was really hard to get into, objectively. So, well, you had to get a 99.5 ATAR. So you had to be in the 99.5th <laughs> percentile of, of grades. And in Australia... This is very different to the States is that in Australia, we only look at numbers. We only look at that one mark. So you got a 99.5 and you're basically an invisible man. Because in America, you have to write an essay. They'll look at your identity. They might do interviews. And they also look at your extracurriculars. You apply to college as a package. Like, oh, I'm mad. I play basketball and I have a podcast but my grades aren't too good. So I'm real rounded. 
or I was part of the band. But in Australia, it all comes down to one number. And that number, it comes purely from marks. So it's a pretty interesting incentive, don't you think? That, that's totally... I did not know that about the American schooling system. Um, it sounds like it's so much better to to supplement your grade with your extracurriculars, with, with an essay about your passions. Because, um, yeah, like, honestly, I think about the way I went through high school to get what I got, the marks, right, to do what I wanted to do. And it was all about playing the game of numbers to optimize my score at the end. Because I knew that was what I needed to do to set myself up to, to, to choose, you know, what I wanted to choose in terms of uh, degrees in uni. I can't believe that they just, in America, they do seem like they, they do a more well-rounded system. I, I don't know if people like go through it and they feel like it's better or not. <laughs> yeah, you know what's really interesting? I did think it was a lot. It was very interesting when I first heard about it. But I almost kind of like the Australian system again. I thought about it for a bit and I've jumped back because the part that I like is the ob- objectivity of it. Is that you can really just... There's two, it's too unpredictable, I think, when you have this weird incentive system that it, it's not very... You can't like look at the math and say, oh, this is the mark I need and this is the mark that I'm going to get. Just more factors. But I, I think it provides incentives though, right? To be well-rounded. Because what happens in Australia, so we both went to selective schools, which are competitive, they're magnet schools, so you need to test to get in, for the record. And 80 to 90% of selective school kids in Sydney, New South Wales, were Asian. 80 to 90%. So you're hugely overrepresented. Here's the thing. So what I, like, that the 80 to 90%, um, the Asian, like, number of Asians in the selective school system is really interesting because I don't know if you had this experience, but I, I was thinking about it recently. And I think because of the way it is that it's all about that number and because all other Asian, well, just about every other Asian kid was encouraged to play the game the same way, just optimize your marks and do what will get you the highest number at the end of the, the way. I feel like me personally, I came out of high school with very little interests outside of school. I didn't have a great, I wasn't encouraged to, to chase my passions, to develop my personality and my extracurricular interests very much. You know, I played an instrument here um, and I like to play a little bit of sport there, but I didn't, particularly from our parents and, and from the rest of our, you know, colleague, uh, our like other students and all that, I was never encouraged to develop those interests, to develop that part of my personality. Um, and because everyone goes through it with that mentality, I feel like I came out without much of a personality. I came out very much not an individual, but like a stereotype, honestly, at the end of high school. And that's been a struggle for me. Like, I think as a young adult, early on in my uni degree and in my early work life, in that I had to, I feel like I had to fight particularly hard or I personally tried quite hard to not just be the stereotype, to not be like every other selective school Asian kid who went to tutoring in, in high school. Um, it was it was so hard and it was really hard because I didn't have those extra interests. I didn't do anything else in high school in those big years where everyone else was out, you know, like, oh, I, I competed at this level with hockey or I, I'm very interested in, in, in like uh, reptiles and animals or astrology, like, I did every other subject that every other kid did. I worked hard at school and that's it. And I was 19 years old. I was an adult. And I had no personality. 100%. Because essentially that was the system that was laid out. And then we came in and it was like, okay, this is the system. Now hyper-optimize your life towards it. <laughs> because this mm. is what people said. This is what people said. <clears throat> in year 12... If you play an instrument or you you play basketball on the side for fun, right? Your parents might be like, why are you doing that when you could be studying instead? So people literally drop their hobbies during the last two years of school. You start playing drums and stop playing basketball. Is that right? You dropped your hobbies. That's crazy, right? To, to tell a kid who has the most time and the most impressionable and open mind who wants to explore the world who wants to develop, find out who they are in these certain aspects, to say, no, 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 
all your time should go towards this number, which actually doesn't contribute to your, to your personality in the future. It just gets you into a degree. And, I, you know, very much so in, in high school, I was like a model minority. I didn't say anything. I just worked and did those subjects like everyone told me to, my teachers, my tutors, my parents. And I got the mark and I was very pleased. And I thought, I'm, I'm, I, you know, this is working. The system works for me. <laughs> uh, and you come out and, yeah, like, I, and that's, I think that's an insecurity for myself. Wow. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's for you, but I feel like I'm always trying not to be what people think the stereotypical Asian kid in a selected school is. Wow. I really love that. Yeah. I, I would say, actually, the experience for me might have been slightly the opposite. But before I get onto that, what's interesting from talking to a lot of Americans is that they did so many things in high school. You know, my friends, they did theater or they were in the drama club or they were in the band or they did a sport. And a lot of times they're talking about hanging out a lot. You know, they're partying or just at their friend's house. And then they ask me, like, what did you do during high school? And I thought, dude, I, I didn't do anything. We, we just studied. In year 11 and 12, we just studied all day, man. <laughs> like, you go to tutoring. Depends. Some people went tutoring every day. That's crazy. But we, we, we're on the lighter side of tutoring where you go one to three times a week. So after school, you go to tutoring. And then on the weekends, you just study all day. No one's having house parties. Why would you have a house party when you could be yeah. studying? <laughs> What's a house party? Like, honestly, what Asian kid would have a house party. It blew my mind. A house party. And people were talking about smoking weed in the bathroom. Dude, you can't smoke weed at a selective school. You're going to fall behind. Do you know how fast-paced some of this shit is, man? People have, you know, so we had training before class um, for basketball, but they had math class before, before class at selective school. Yeah, I, I did maths from like 7.30 to 9 o'clock. That's uh, that. That's what I did. You were in, in one of those in, math classes. I was in one of those morning maths. Yeah, it was like some advanced class that you did, and everyone hated being there, but everyone did it for the same reason. And yeah, it was ninety percent Asian in that class. Dude, uh, that's hilarious. Of all the things you have to wake up early for, <laughs> math class. You know, when yeah. you wake up early for a workout, it kind of feels okay because you're gonna get that workout in, but you're gonna wake up <laughs> to do. The most technical subject there is in high school. Yeah, what a way to wake up. You know, integration and <laughs> calculus. Oh, great. <laughs> I know you chose the, the Asian 4. Will you tell people what the Asian 4 is? So, the, <laughs> the Asian 4 is um, for, for the Australian Selective, I don't know, what is it? The HSC, Higher School Certificate. The Asian 4, the, the four best subjects um, to choose to try to opt your marks because they, they they're worth the most in the overall marking scheme um so what, what is it it's it's english at the minimum that you can do english <laughs> the least is, english possible yes yeah, the least english possible essentially and then it's four unit maths which is the highest amount of maths possible all the, math. the most math you can do in high school it's chemistry and physics and those are the four subjects and you drop everything else and you pour your heart and soul into those four subjects, even though none of them are worth anything for you in the future. To maximize your mark. Yeah. To maximize and, and your overall mark. I got mark. that mark, yeah. And he got it, he got it. So it's hilarious. It's not about, oh, Josh, what do you want to study? Do you, do you want to do economics or music? or No, it's uh, do the Asian four to get the yeah. best mark. And so many people did this. It's actually super common to do the Asian four. Yeah, you were you were considered like, oh, why are you not doing the Asian four? Uh, that's weird. Or, or it would be like, why are you doing more than that? You don't need to do the rest. Just do the four. <laughs> Such an Asian love thing to say. <laughs> don't, don't choose more English. You know, it's not interesting. It's not helpful. Just do the four. Yeah, try these if there was. <laughs> try. <laughs> yeah. And so this is a this is where I think we actually differed is that I think you were very much a model student. You really killed it academically, truly. And I, in comparison, 
did decently, did pretty good, but relative to you, it was really nothing. So Marbella, you got a 99.45. So that's in the 99.5th percentile of people. <laughs> and I got an 89.75. So I'm still 90th percentile. Yeah. Well, 89.75th percentile. And I kid you not, I got clowned so hard for this. I, w- I got clowned for being in the 90th percentile <laughs> of people. Yeah, it's so true. People laughed at you for being the 90th percentile. They thought, you're not the 95th or the 99th. That's re- you're so dumb. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that it truly. So I see things on the other side, right? You did Asian 4. Four units of math, two units of English, physics, chemistry. Very scientific, very objective subjects. And I did a little bit more math, three unit math. And then I did a little bit more English as three unit English. And then I did music and chemistry. (laughs) And I, I did get, doing music was a mistake, truly. But throughout my entire academic career, I feel like you were always pretty killing it. And I was not doing that well. And, and dude, honestly, it actually made me quite insecure for a long time, if you can imagine. But when I was eight years old and we were getting ranked in tutoring, so they would literally give you your ranks from one to 200 students. And sometimes I would, often I would land in the bottom half, like 150 or something. And I would go home, be sad. I would scrunch on my tutoring papers <laughs> and I would, <laughs> I would throw them into my closet, like the top cabinet of the closet. I would just chuck it in there and there would just be 20 papers of me doing shitty. And this is what happens to a lot of Asian kids because we can't all be insane because everybody is working at this pace and this level. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's too hard to keep up really. Um, you compete with other Asians. Exactly. (laughs) Everyone's going to the same amount of tutoring. But, but like, you know, I feel like at the, at the end of the day, you kind of lose for doing it, for playing the game that way. Because you, you come out and people who actually interview you for work, they say, what are, you, what are your interests? And you have very little to say. You didn't do much in high school. Ah, uh, yeah. No, completely. I think a lot of Asians coming out of high school, I, I think when they reach adulthood, a lot of people try to be more active. But even still... This translates to multiple stages of life. You come out of high school not having many hobbies. And in university, you didn't do, maybe if you didn't do too much either, it definitely carries over into adulthood. That's why a lot of Asians um, in the West, I would say, are not as social as, as other people. There's mm, yeah, you grow up in a classroom where you just, all your extra hours outside of school, you're just supposed to sit down and do homework. You don't go to hang out with your friends. I mean, I didn't know how to talk to girls properly for so long. Like in high school, I was just like, what are you talking about? That I just need to go to school. And it was so awkward for me to, to know how to socialize with people uh, and knowing like what's cool and stuff. I felt disadvantaged. I definitely yeah. felt disadvantaged. I think in, in the dating sense, yeah, that is something that uh, we, we could look at is that it's strange that how the expectations just change on you so quickly, right? Because during school, you're maximizing marks. You're maximizing marks. Don't don't hang out with Tim down the street. You got to study. Are you guys going to study together? If not, <laughs> don't hang out with Tim. So you maximize marks. And then you come out of high school. Uh, you do university or college for a bit. And then they're like, yo, where's your girlfriend? Or, or where's your boyfriend? Like, where are your friends? Yeah, the expectation suddenly to have friends and to be on the, the you know the path to marriage really early on comes out of nowhere, and you think you didn't give me that chance. <laughs> I haven't done any of that before. Like, where am I, why are you talking to me about that now? It was all about books till now. You're right, and it's that it's that pace, right? You got to keep up with the expectation. You got to keep up. Now it's school. Now it's work. Now it's wife. Like, oh, where did I have the time before? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's it's actually insane. it's unfair for those kids out there man yeah it's it's like they're saying like where are your bitches and it's like i've never had a chance to, to look for any <laughs> bitches like i have no idea how to talk to anybody that that definitely happens huh so you definitely it's two edges of the sword right because you have that discipline pushed into you because at the same time you can't say that that 
didn't contribute you to you being a doctor right now or contribute to me being a software engineer in a different country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the the discipline that you learn, um, the, the the values of like hard work um, and just sticking through shit things. It's like it does get you really far. And, and that's why, again, I, I feel like that's what I got out of high school. That's like probably the most important lesson for me um, is how to get through and just push through like that. But even now, I think that's still like it's still that difficulty of like being the, that model worker or model student or model minority of just like not complaining, put your head down um, and just do the, do you know, grit through it. You know, like one of the things I realized recently is that even now in my workplace, I'm pretty far on. I'm pretty senior already, but I'm still really afraid of disappointing my seniors, uh, my bosses. In the same way that I was afraid of disappointing, uh, you know, mum and dad and my tutors. And that disappointment is like disproportionate. It's it's not the regular amount, I'd say. Like I work really hard and I agonize over when I have to disappoint somebody uh, who's in a senior position. And it's this like terrible cycle of I should probably stand up for myself a little bit more. I should probably say, you know, that's not that's not on me. Uh, this is out of my control. But. I, it's just the way that you're kind of taught. This is the that's the downside of of the way we were raised. I don't I don't know well, if you feel that way. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I want you to expand a bit on how what we were talking about before translates to not wanting to disappoint. Because I guess before we were talking more about how we've hyper optimized the system. But how do you think that's translated to you? At least for me, um, I've been fortunate to have a lot of uh, things go my way because of the hard work, because of the the kind of that that's that mentality that I go in with. Right. And because of that, it's really scary and really difficult for me when things don't go that way. And I still have worked really hard at it. I remember early on in my work when I didn't get the job that I wanted. Um, I was disappointed for sure. Like I was a little bit sad. But the real part that tore me up about it was I felt like I was disappointing dad. Um, when he didn't even know about the job that I was up for and the promotion that I could have had. Um, and it killed me. Like, I, I, like genuinely, I cried really hard over the phone to dad when I didn't get my job. Not because I was sad about it, because, but because like, I remember saying this to him. I said, all I want in life is to make you proud and make you know, our family proud. And that took a long time for me to get over because I, I don't think that's a positive. I think that's almost toxic for me because I was doing, I was working so hard. I was working my ass off. I was doing these, you know, 14 hour shifts every day. Not for me, uh, not for my partner, but for like our family's pride. Incredible. For the respect. Um, wow. And it really killed me inside when I couldn't do it. it yeah. Like it really ripped me up. This, this seems like, that, that's very moving stuff, man. But this seems quite common in these circles of Asian immigrant children because there is so much placed on you because your parents sacrifice so much, right? As we said, you come in lower middle class and then you get sent to tutoring and tutoring is not cheap. These people have sacrificed so much for you. They, they will spend upwards of like 20 to 50% of their paycheck so that you can go to tutoring after school and they'll send you to piano lessons or whatever lesson or help to make you a more optimized person for studying but then it all falls on you because you're holding up the pressures of like entire families right if your grandparents also came to australia everybody is wondering how you're doing in school like what what mark did you get that's going upwards and everyone's talking about it because they're putting so much on you and i i think this definitely has its its negatives because people suffer from just having this enormous load on them, I would say, and super common yeah. in Asian immigrant circles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like when you ask, you know, our parents and the parents uh, who do this, you know, like why they do it, it it's always really selfless, right? They, they want to sacrifice, you know, their own enjoyment, their own weekends to take their kids to tutoring, um, to take their kids to this class and to get them into that school. Um, and it's a lot of self-sacrifice for that next generation. And you think to yourself, isn't that heartwarming? 
isn't that so like lovely to see that parents love their kids so much? Obviously they do, right? And they do it for a good cause. But I think, like you said, the other side, the other edge of that sword is that it comes with so much burden and so much guilt, honestly. Like I feel like, like I'm sure you feel a very similar way. Like with all that, we inherit the guilt of like our parents and our grandparents in that like because of what they gave up for us, I have to do this. I have to prove myself. I have to succeed in my field. Um, and it, 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 it's like this thing that you carry with you. And it's taken me the longest time because when I, when I do things for myself or when I do selfish things for me and my partner, it feels like I'm doing my parents and my, my, my family a bit of a disservice in not, in not kind of like paying them back for the, that sacrifice that they've made. And it's super challenging, right? Because you want to respond to that and say, give your life and prove their their sacrifices, prove that it was all worth it. But at the same time, you want to live for yourself. You want to do what you want to do. And it's often really difficult. You're definitely at a crossroads. You're definitely at a crossroads. I can remember distinctly when we used to go tutoring and they would almost put what you just said into literal words. And they would say, why are you doing so shit? Do you know how much money this costs us? Or do you know how much tutoring costs? Like, why are you not studying? They will show you their sacrifice. So I think sometimes they, they, were, they weren't showed as much. And I, I think very admirable that they don't sometimes. But sometimes I think they physically, well, not physically, they literally will show you their sacrifice. And they will say, we came, we did all this for you. We did all of this for you. And it just explicitly puts that burden on you to succeed. Mm. It feels like you're this like prize pony that needs to perform uh, because they poured all this money into you. I've only realized that like, it, uh, and I feel like it only gets worse than as, as an adult because as an adult, when I'm making my own life choices, I realize the challenging choices that they've had to make and the sacrifices, the weight of those sacrifices really, you know, like how much tutoring actually costs, how much time it costs them, money it costs them. And it's like, it becomes even harder because as an adult, you want your own things, you want your own life, but at the same time, you know that they put everything in their life for yours. Um, oh, completely. Yeah. It's It seems as if, I often think that whilst you definitely could have become anything in your life, there were certain things that were much more well lit because you were an Asian immigrant. For example, there might be a timeline out there where you became a rapper, but there were certain things that were so well lit and I think it all falls down to utility or the ability to reliably provide those life parts. Yeah. I mean, I got lucky. Uh, I, I did the every Asian parent's dream um, of for what their kid could do. So I went into medicine and obviously like for a while and even now I, I have it easy, I think, compared to probably a lot of my friends who have to face, you know, like that level of guilt of being like, am I doing enough to make them feel like, you know, to make them feel happy? I got, I got really lucky. Uh, Even so, I I still feel that with every, like every choice I make, like how will they respond to this? Like, is, does that make them happy as well? Of course. Yeah. Interesting enough, Terrence, one of our good friends, I believe what his parents said to him as he was approaching the end of high school was essentially, Oh, you're going to do medicine. And then when he didn't get into medicine, they essentially said, you should do law now. <laughs> so Okay, so there's definitely a spectrum of how much pressure the parents put on their kids explicitly. And you also get a lot of pressure from the social circle because your friends and their parents, some Asian parents will essentially force you to do things and they won't care how you feel about it at all. They'll say, oh, go play piano. So you can't play, so don't play basketball anymore. Like, oh, you should study medicine or law. Mm. They are really so like, dismissive of your interests. Yeah. And, you know, on, on that note of like the, the jobs or the, the career paths that Asians approve of, um, I, was re- I was reading something recently that was talking about like intergenerational trauma. And it was saying that like a lot of Asian immigrants who, come, who came from, you know, pretty unstable places or economies or societies um, China's probably wasn't the worst, but at the time it probably seemed quite like difficult for them to make a living, uncertain for the future with all of what was going on. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of other Asians from other countries who had a lot more challenging experiences, you know, like from Cambodia or Vietnam and all that. 
Um, and it was saying that the, these people, these migrants who come, what they do is they they try to force their kids or encourage their kids down pathways where they can make a more stable living and a stable income because it, it almost as a reactionary response to what they've gone through, through the instability and the uncertainty that they've gone through. And it's kind of like the kids are inheriting that that trauma and it's almost their responsibility to try to heal their parents in like we can now feel relieved that we're going to make it, that we're not in that instability, that you guys are, you know, can navigate what we had to navigate safely. You you weren't even there. You're not even born in that country. You don't have that experience of uh, uncertainty, of political instability, but you're almost like you're almost expected to to respond to that, to, 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 to deal with it, even though it doesn't exist for you. It existed only for your parents. Yes, com- completely. I, I think we, being from China, obviously you said it, it's not as bad as some of the, the later places you mentioned, but you do you do still inherit that. You inherit these flaws that are not no longer relevant. And the one, okay, this is one that is stereotypically kind of true, to be honest, and that is Asians are cheap. And it's because our parents and our grandparents were very, very poor. So when they first came to Australia or the US or wherever you grew up, everything was very expensive to them because, again, they're poor. So they look for deals. They go couponing or whatever your Asian parent did to save money, like pick up ketchup from Macca's or napkins and take them home. It's because it, it comes from trying to survive. So while it's a odd flaw to have now as someone that like has a normal career and has a partner that also works and you know how like make a decent amount of money you're still kind of cheap and it's like this is out of place mm. where did you learn that from like why are you like that you haven't gone through any hardship yourself you haven't dealt with that problem why do you have these personality traits that seem to be responsive to something um, but I, I think that happens a lot right like uh, this kind of like you inherit that, that that value that trait because of some trauma that happened to an other another generation yeah. While, whilst we're on this topic, I, I think we should pivot to the family unit in Asian culture. And, you know, every single family unit is extremely important. How your life turns out is, I mean, family is just such an important part of everyone's family when it is present. So I'm not disregarding the experience of other people's and their families. Obviously, everyone emphasizes family, but the Asian immigrant family is a very interesting one because it's commonly a nuclear family in that there's two parents, monogamous parents, that don't get divorced and have two kids roughly. It's extremely interesting because you actually have a cultural clash with your very own parents. You are a blend of the East and the West, more Western in in most areas, and your parents are very Eastern. So there's a culture clash immediately. But there is still so much emphasis on, emphasis on the family unit. For example, Asians in the West have the lowest divorce rates of all races. And I think as spectators to this love, it's a very interesting love, right? Because in China, the divorce rates are not extremely low. But Asians in the West have very low divorce rates. And it's because of this thought that it's like in a bond that should never be broken, in marriage because I think a lot of Asian parents have quite toxic relationships at times. From a Western point of view, you think these people probably shouldn't be together. But even if your parents hate each other, so many Asian parents I've met just screaming at each other, having huge digs at each other, even our own parents, and they will never get divorced. It's binding. Have you seen that? Um, I find that interesting that, you know, Asians in the West, um, had the lower divorce rates. And I wonder if it's just like that, the the idea that you're, you're quite socially isolated outside of your family when you when you migrate. Um, you just have your partner and your kids and you have a few friends, but you don't have those like supports. You don't have a, 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 you know, a community that you might even look for alternative partners. Everyone's really, I mean, for the most part, everyone kind of migrates with that kind of family already in place. They're, they're either already married 
or they already kind of like have kids. Um, certainly all our parents' friends generally are like in families already and they probably just don't have that dating pool perhaps even to see alternatives. I, I don't know if that's it. No, it's a really interesting thought. <laughs> yeah, because if you do think about it that way, imagine being a 40-year-old Chinese man in Australia that doesn't speak English and then now you're single and you want to get back out there. Who <laughs> 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 you going to talk yeah, to? Yeah. Yeah, it's but pretty hard. I think there is also the the reason of staying together to for the kids. You know, I think a lot of times they neglect their own relationship for the family because there there is so much evidence that shows children living with two biological married parents experience much better outcomes in life on education, social, and behavioral outcomes. Yeah, and you know what? Like that's that that notion of like parents sacrificing their own happiness again to, to increase the outcomes for their kids. It's like, I think that's one of the big things for me um, that I found out during my, you know, premarital counseling is that like, I feel like growing up as a kid, I never saw our parents really enjoy being in their relationship together a lot. They, 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 they very, I feel like they had very little moments for themselves where they were expressing like happiness it j- just with each other, you know, and physical affection as well. Um, and that, that's kind of been like this kind of really insecurity for me that I think that's what I look for now because I didn't get to see that as a kid. Like, I feel like I really need to have a lot of affection um, in my current relationship uh, because I didn't, I just, I'm so deathly afraid of seeing that or going through that, of seeing like a couple who just are not really happy together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I think what you're talking about is how the culture is going to change with time. As we continue to live in the West, then your children are going to be much more Western than Eastern at all. Yeah. And that, that kind of, that, I think that's why it's so, I guess, interesting to talk about being a second gen immigrant and why I like and why I really enjoy, I guess, talking to my friends who are also second gen or even first gen immigrants is that that interesting experience of like you love your parents or you're really close to them but you can't really relate to them on so many levels that they really don't know what you're going through you don't know what they're going through and that you're so different value-wise culturally to them you know what i mean and your own kids like my kids will be so different to our parents uh they'll be just full-blown aussies (laughs) Um, and my you know again like dad barely speaks English on a day-to-day basis how they're going to interact you know like you know what fucks me up about that is like because English is their second language and English is my first language I feel like I can't have or I never will be able to have like that like deep really good conversation with with our parents uh, um, where you really just like get into your feelings and get into your thoughts because I can't convey those in, in, in Chinese and they can't convey it in English. Yeah, that's um, actually quite depressing, the thought. Yeah. Because both ways, because ma- our mom speaks English, but she doesn't speak it completely fluently either. But it, it's quite strong. It is quite strong. But you still would have a bit of a language barrier at times. So there was no one in your family other than your siblings that you've been able to have very deep conversations with. Because I speak at maybe a second grade or first grade level in Chinese. So you think about that's the extent of my conversation with my parents on the first Mm. grade level. And like the same thing for our grandparents. You know, like I feel very close to our grandparents generally. But when we talk, I miss so much of what they say. And, you know, they're at their age where they're trying to pass knowledge. They're trying to pass lessons. I'd love to be able, you know, when grandpa was alive, I would have loved to be able to stop him and say, what what have you done that you really enjoyed about your life? Or what do you regret about your life? Like, I just couldn't ask him those questions and I couldn't get the answer. And I feel like that makes you feel quite alone in your family in that, like, you can't really ask what you want to think or what you want to get out of them. Um, and I think that's why I have ended up bonding really closely with my friends who are also second gen immigrants, uh, because it's it's that experience of like, also, you don't know how much of your culture you should keep, how much you should assimilate and just ditch or, or leave behind your, your parents' roots. You, like, I feel like there's this, this interesting space where you navigate your life with. 
Wow. About how much you pass on, right? Wow. Yeah. I I think it's a it's a fascinating thought about you not really being understood by anyone in your own family. Yes, we sit at a very special intersection between two very different cultures, where the East and the West blend, and truly, like you said, the people that we're going to relate to the most and vibe with the most and probably have as our closest friends typically is other Asians that grew up in the West. Because with completely Western people, you will feel a culture clash. And with purely Eastern people, you will also face that culture clash. I mean, we've definitely hung out with Chinese people who are coming to visit Australia. And they're very different, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I I feel like I can't relate to them at all. Um, and And I think about how hard it would be to be to live in China, to grow up in China. Um, but at the same time, I feel really connected to, to their identity. Uh, I, I read something that was saying, you know, one of the great privileges, and I, well, at least what I think is one of the great privileges of being a second generation immigrant is that often we're the bridge for between the West and the Eastern cultures. Um, and we allow people to engage with, you know, our parents' culture in a, in a, really kind of direct way because we, we bring it to them right like if I had friends who are not from China um, I could tell them you know my traditions and how 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 I celebrate you know Chinese New Year or how I get red pockets every birthday and I can like you know cook them the food that my family eats and it, we are that bridge for people to be introduced to that culture to keep it alive and I think that's like an awesome you know, privilege, awesome place to be. Mm. Yeah, and you're also the bridge on the other way around in that you bridge the Aussie culture too. Yes. You, you talk about, you know, it's interesting being an Asian or Chinese Australian living in the US because my identity to most people is more Australian in that a lot of the slang that I use, my accent is Australian and a lot of where I've been influenced culturally is Aussie culture or Western culture. We definitely watch more American movies, okay, not Australian movies, but American movies than we do Chinese movies. But yes, I, I think this is a good place to conclude. Josh, it's been great having you on the podcast. Any Thanks for having thoughts? Me. Yeah, I mean, look, we've talked today a lot, I think, about the negatives um, of, of being an Asian, uh, American, Asian, Australian. But really, I, I don't view it as a negative. I, I think it's such a privilege. I think it's such an interesting space to be in. And I feel really honored to have these cultures that inspire me and drive me um, to be who I am. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, I think sometimes we do find it hard to find our footing in a Eurocentric society, in a Western society. But do remember that your story is extremely unique and honestly is kind of magical. Your parents came here in whatever circumstance that they did, whether that was on a plane or a boat or from a more chaotic country or a more stable country. Your parents have had such an interesting story having you here. And we have so much rich history, not just in the West now, but going back to the East. I mean, go back a thousand years and imagine what your descendants were doing. Sorry, your ancestors were doing then. So... Definitely, I would say it's an immense privilege. As we continue to develop in the West, there's going to be so much great representation coming out. I mean, just recently, I think we definitely have had a boost in great representation. We had that show, Kim's Convenience. We have 88 Rising. Crazy Rich Asians, debatable. We have male leads in romances now, Henry Golding. And we're definitely coming a long way from being looked at as that weak, subservient, model minority. And I encourage you not to not be yourself, but to really hone in on your crafts and be the best version of yourself. Um, I always think that I am kind of putting on for my people, especially in the West, because we are stereotyped to be a certain way. Going by how we are individually, it will affect how everyone views us on a macro level. Yes, I encourage everyone to always be the best version of yourselves. If you're an Asian that came out of high school, not with many hobbies or social experiences, 
I definitely encourage you to get out there because unfortunately no one can do it for you. You can't go to tutoring for making friends or tutoring for picking up chicks. Actually, I, I think you can <laughs> to some extent, but you don't want to be in those tutoring classes. Just get out there. And Josh, what a pleasure. It has been having you on this podcast, 15 hour time difference. How, how was your first experience? That was kind of crazy, no? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's um, obviously, it's been really fun. We always have fun catching up, but it's an interesting thing to talk about um, and to talk about it for other people, whoever might be listening, um, is a great experience. Mm, I never had any conversation with this guy. Okay, well, to all our viewers or listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Overthinking the Modern World. This was Matt and Josh signing out. See ya. I hope you enjoyed this second episode of Overthinking the Modern World titled Journey to the West. If you're an Asian that lives in the West, regardless of which of the 48 countries in the incredibly diverse Asian continent that you ethnically belong to, I do want to leave you a quick message. That is to always have pride in your roots and to treasure them. Your lineage is incredibly rich filled with fierce warriors, remarkable scholars, and inspired creatives. And most recently, voyagers. Those that ventured into the unknown, leaving behind everything for a chance at a better life, equipped with only the simple tools of hope and ingenuity. Undoubtedly, we will continue to face prejudices, as we have in the past, but we will also continue to thrive. There are many others on that road with you and that road has been paved by those that came before and you will continue to pave that road etching it into history by simply being. Thank you.